Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Subway, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And today we have author, inspirational speaker, and Coney Hatch frontman Carl Dixon back in the studio. Carl, welcome back, sir. Thanks. It's great to be back. Uh, your new record, Whole Nother Thing, is available now wherever anybody buys music. Coney Hatch is back out there in November touring with British Lion, and that's Steve Harris's uh, little side hustle. And you guys are playing a Toronto date at uh, the Queen Elizabeth Theatre, November yes. 1st. And I expect our friend Ron McLean to be front row that night. Well, funny <laughs> enough, I just happen to be sitting in on this. <laughs> Brent can't get rid of me, Carl. <laughs> I'm sick of myself. I can imagine the listener. But, uh, yeah, I wanted to come and say hello to you, of course, because Helen and you were such great hosts in Halliburton when we did hometown hockey there last season. And uh, funny enough, I was with Andy Curran yesterday. Is that right? Were, were you on we, the ice? Or what no, we, we were doing a little video for 5440. Uh, they've got a new album out as well. Uh-huh. So Andy somehow was connected to helping to orchestrate the video shoot of their song, How's Your Day Going? And uh-huh. uh, Michael Weckerly of Dragons. Of course, fame. Michael, yeah. Yeah, so we were all together, and I was saying, what are the odds I'll see the two Coney Hatch guys back to back? And uh, <laughs> so Andy to Carl, and that's the way it goes. Oh, great. Hello, yeah. operator. <laughs> So as Carl said, we have a little twist today. We have a guest sitting in, Ron McLean. Thank you very much for coming as well. I know it's a bit of a trek all the way from Oakville, but I appreciate that. It's not like from Halliburton. So uh, on the day that Helen and Carl drove in, we've had uh, storms, crazy storms, flooded the city of Toronto. And so to drive in was, uh, I'm sure, not an easy thing. But I wanted to uh, give you this. Uh, I told Brent when I got here from your book, Carl, which I love. Uh, Strange Way to Live is uh, the story of a rock and roll resurrection, Carl's story of not only his career, his memory, more of music, but also, of course, his crash. If you don't know, he had a bad car crash in 2008 in Australia, and he uh, overcame the longest of odds uh, to be in this situation today. (laughs) But here's what amazed me. Andy Curran was mentioning, Carl always remembered what I had spoken to him about. I had phoned in and uh, mentioned something, and Carl retained that, and he said it was amazing in that refuse of a body that he had his mind as sharp as it was coming out of the accident. But here's what you wrote in your uh, memoir. And I knew that uh, Brent Jensen would get a huge kick out of this. Hmm. Just prior to waking from the coma, so you were in an induced coma right after the accident. So many surgeries. He had uh, close to 20 hours of surgery, a little break, and then another 20 hours of surgery, and then he's in an induced coma for close to two weeks. Just prior to waking from the coma, or at least what seemed to be just prior, I'm now in northern Ontario at a walk-in medical clinic filled with Canadians like the ones I grew up with in Sault Ste. Marie. They were old and young there, all waiting to see doctors. It was on a highway near Espanola, a small plaza of storefronts. People came and went in pickup trucks, and the scene felt so familiar. From that dream place, I awoke. Now, Brent is from Espanola. Uh, How crazy is uh, that? So right? the, the odds of, uh, and his podcast is No Sleep Till Sudbury, and yeah. your podcast ought to be No Waking Till Espanola. <laughs> But you are uh, you are connected by that crazy bit of serendipity. That- well, isn't that amazing? I'll go a step further. My grandfather, yeah. uh, Dr. Bertie Dixon, was the sole practicing uh, doctor on Manitoulin Island, Espanola. Uh-huh. That's why I, I, I felt later, and I'm getting chills just as I tell you this, uh, that I may have been just tapping into my grandfather's time at, at Espanola with his clinic that he, he served the whole island. Wow. Uh, that was in the 50s. That is fantastic. What are the chances of that? Yeah, well, I mean, it's like Maggie May. So here's one other story that I actually told uh, Brent on when I did the uh, podcast, uh, is we were in Halliburton, and uh, we're having a conversation about musical train wrecks and how some of the best work ever 
the greatest genius is usually uh, born of things that went wrong in the recording session. And I said, well, give me an example of a song that's not actually uh, according to Hoyle. And he says, well, Maggie May by Rod Stewart. I said, you're kidding. And if you go to my memoir, page 56. One of your favorites. I talk about yeah. Maggie May being my lucky song. And yeah. I, I always sort of thought, uh, again, you always look for a metaphor in something. But um, all my life uh, is broadcasting blunders, right? Trying to uh, tap into some stroke of uh, intelligence and getting it wrong over and over again. And I think to <laughs> and the myself, recovery is the miracle, right? Yeah. The magic. <laughs> you taught me through Maggie May and Rod Stewart that striking a chord, even if it's the wrong chord, <laughs> it can go platinum. So I, I, I was really grateful that you taught me that it's not wrong to have it wrong. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's it's what you do with it when you when you blunder into that unexpected territory. Well, I said it to Andy Curran yesterday. I was explaining how Carl taught me about Maggie May wasn't perfect. And he says, oh, God, Ron, it's terrible. The first 15 seconds, no one's in sync. <laughs> and I thought, that's unbelievable to me because I love the opening to the song, right? So for him to say, and to you have me uh, understand that was, uh, but it's in my memoir. That So we, we have all these little yeah. pearls in our books. Uh, uh, it's neat. The three of us each has a book. That's kind of strange. I don't think yeah. I've ever been in a room of uh, yeah. people where everybody in the room has their own book. Yeah. And Helen is, is going to have her own book too soon, the the lady videoing my wife. Uh, she's just finishing a book as well. So we got a quartet. Now, is that of, on the 72 or that was a documentary shoot? Is it that's to that? that? No, this is a novel that Helen's been working on about the end of the world actually. Good. So, nice. Yes, we'll have to provide you with copies when uh, when it's done. Yeah. No, it was a lot of fun to exchange books today. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yes. we will add uh, another book the next time you guys come by. Sure. Yeah. Uh, okay, so before we get into your songs, Carl, you've got some great songs here. Uh, and Ron is going to chime in, I, I would expect, as, as I we hope go so. through the tunes, hopefully. But it's your now, show, Carl. I just wanted to be here for it. Well, okay. Uh, Step Carl, aside then, son. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Carl, you brought your guitar. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were talking uh, online, and we were wondering if we could maybe coax uh, Ron into singing a couple of bars, maybe, if he is so inclined. Well, I would see. need a prompter. I, you know, <laughs> I, you know. Well, I, I was going to suggest, do you know uh, Won't Back Down? Well, I, I know the song, of course, but I, I wouldn't know the words, uh, Carl. You can lead, and I'll follow. Uh, I'll jump in, too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. As long as we have some help, I, I'm, I can be uh, twenty feet from stardom. It's like, it's like Happy Birthday. You just kind of sing the background. So. Yeah, that's, that's right. Everybody knows the chorus on that one. Yeah. That's right. All right. Well, we'll get into that in a minute. Sure. Uh, do you want to jump into your tunes? Oh, sure. Let's let's do that. Yeah. Uh, what have you got first on the list? So uh, we've got Queen. Now I'm here. Oh, Queen. Now I'm here from the Sheer Heart Attack album. Last yes. song. Last track. Side one. Uh, the first one of the first bands I was ever in um, was called Great White Buffalo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we were so thrilled. I, as a as budding guitar player, I was so thrilled that y- I could actually make that descending with my hands, sounding just like the guys on the record. Yes. How? How do? Wow! <laughs> I'm right in there, you know. And and the 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 song just explodes after that restrained intro of "Here I stand, look around, 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 around." You know, it, the Freddie Mercury vocal thing. Yeah. Uh, it and then the huge harmonies and the vo- The lyrics were so clever. Yeah, that one made made me the hair stand on the back of my neck. Yes. When, when I got the Sheer Heart Attack record, so yeah, we we did our very best as 16 and 17 year olds to emulate that sound. 
Did you cover it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we never got a single gig, but we did we had lots of rehearsals. <laughs> no, I actually had more gigs with the band before that than I did with that one. Yeah. Because the yeah. band before that, I was playing with 25-year-olds, and they uh, had more of a, a way into the bars than I did. That's uh, in Montreal, yeah. was that? No, this was in Barrie, actually. Oh, okay. mm. Yeah, I moved to Montreal later. What were some of the places you're playing in Barrie around that time? Well, actually, we were not... We weren't welcome in the big city of Barrie at that mm-hmm. time. No, we were out at Port McNichol and uh, oh, okay. Blue Mountain when it was still tiny. And, uh, yeah. and the Craigleith Ski Club was my first ever professional gig. Nice. And the story I remember from that night, it, it, well, you know how embarrassing things, you, you remember them forever? Yeah. I had my favorite pair of jeans. We all had our favorite pair of jeans when we were teenagers. And, and I thought, oh, boy, I'm going to wear them for my first gig with the, with the big boys. And, yeah. And uh, the zipper was busted. Oh, and no. I discovered it when I put them on that night, and I thought, well, if I, you know, I'm hidden behind the guitar, so no one will notice, but then I could, I was nervous about it, and I kept reaching behind the guitar and hiking the zipper up, yeah. and I thought, okay, I'm getting away with this, this is okay, and then about half a dozen songs in, somebody yells out between songs, hey, stop playing with yourself, and oh. get back to playing music. <laughs> That's so oh, terrible. No, <laughs> they they see me. <laughs> when you're you 16, to, your your ears burn at a moment like right. that. Right, and you had to finish the show. That had to way. finish the show. Yeah. I was doing a golf event with Jack Nicholas, Tom Weisskopf, Tom Watson, and Lee Trevino. Well, this is good company. Yeah, yeah. A, you know heavyweights, right? Yeah. And we were out at the uh, we were at Summerlee Golf Club in Montreal. And Tom Watson, real elegant guy, uh, his fly was undone. <laughs> and somebody in the gallery, they were at a putting green, they started having casual conversation and practicing putts, and somebody from the gallery mentioned, Mr. Watson, your fly is undone. Mm. And Lee Trevino didn't skip a beat. He says, don't worry about it, Tom. Dead men don't fall out of windows. <laughs> that kind of settled everything down. <laughs> All right, your next tune, Carl, is by The Who, and it's The Real Me. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, Quadrophenia mm-hmm. by The Who. That uh, that was a hugely formative album for me. I remember going out uh, using my summer job money. My first couple of summer jobs were back when the, the minimum wage was $1.45 an hour mm. and in wow. Ontario anyway. And uh, so I blew my money a couple of months later uh, on getting... Quadrophenia, the two record set, and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John, the other two record set. On this, they were released to Sam the Record Man in Canada on the same day. Yeah. So I must have spent thirty bucks to get the two of them. That was enormous money in those days. Yeah. So uh, I mean, they were both enormous albums, but Quadrophenia, you know, Pete Townsend was really tapping into the the heart and soul of the teenage experience of when he was young and what he observed with the mods and the rockers having their scraps in England and mm-hmm. and really it was the post-war post-World War II ang- anxiety that all those war babies felt in growing up in the rationing they were all half starved with bad teeth and yeah. and uh, skinny and undersized and and yet they forged this huge sound of uh, I guess expressing their their rage or anxiety or whatever it was that was coming out of the post-war generation in England that made the British invasion sound. So, yeah. so Quadrophenia took that Townsend amazing rock power that he could uniquely create and express yeah. and then took the stories of what he observed from young people and, and the central character, Jimmy, who was quadrophenic, four personalities. Yeah. I'm not schizophrenic, I'm bleeding quadrophenic. Yeah. And so the real me 
out of the uh, waves on the beach kind of intro track just explodes into this uh, a crazy um, soaring drums uh, and bass and guitar part with Roger Daltrey singing his brains out and that's desperately exciting that track yes. when it comes in yeah and in brilliant. fact I just I just spent last Wednesday down in Tonawanda New York outside mm-hmm. Buffalo I saw that appearing in the role of Roger Daltrey for some friends of mine who have a Who band and they their singer was unable to do the gig and and uh, they said Carl could you stand in for us because we you know we want to keep the band going we don't want to miss this gig so I thought well this will be fun you know I've never really done a night of that so I learned all the songs and I watch some of the video from Woodstock to get the right, the Roger Daltrey way of standing maybe, I don't know. But it was really just a thrill to be singing that music that I grew up with uh, in in this one-off appearance. Funny, uh, video of that circulated and now they're saying they're getting offers from all over northeastern states and, oh, Ontario, and Canada that they want us to do that again. Oh, they want so you to So that'll be, be about my fifth or sixth band that I'm taking part in if I do it. But it was so much fun, you know. Just that there's something heroic about the Who music. Oh, yeah. At that peak of of Townsend's powers, where you just feel like Daltrey in that role with that bellowing voice, you know, and and the the way the lyrics make you feel. It's just such a combination of. I know for me as a young teenage fella, it made me feel inspired to be something great when I heard that music. Yeah, there's something very bombastic about it. And I'll tell you another, uh, just stories that are unrelated, but kind of related. When I was in Halliburton for hometown hockey, uh, Helen was working on a documentary concerning the 1972 Summit Series between Canada and the Soviet Union. And I knew that Carl liked Pat Stapleton. I didn't have a Pat Stapleton sweater, but I had a Phil Esposito 72 sweater that I gave to him. That's great. Uh, But... What's neat is, is Don Cherry, my colleague on Hockey Night in Canada, of course, coached Phil Esposito in the Boston Bruins, and the rookie year for Don was 74-75, and it didn't go great, and Phil kept saying to Don all through the season, don't worry about it, Grapes, we'll be there when the bell rings, you know, because he thought they were having too much fun, and they weren't focused enough, and... They did like to party. Yeah, so Phil kept promising, we'll be there, but they weren't there. That first year in the playoffs, they kind of bombed out, and Don went, uh, he got back home to Kingston, Ontario, had his Lincoln got his hose and got start to wash the car and blasted the who won't mm. get fooled again ah. nice. <laughs> and he said uh, that's it i know who's going Perfect. Uh, and that was kind of the day he decided that phil esposito and ken hodge would be moved to the new york rangers so, wow really uh, it was uh, don's four personalities coming through right uh, you know and he uh, he loved phil but he he just felt like it was time yeah. It was the Who that he had two songs, Don Cherry, that uh, that he would always play. The yep. Who won't get fooled again, and Jigsaw. You've blown it all sky high. He used to play that to himself <laughs> uh, over and over again because he felt like he'd screwed up by not being himself, not yeah. being true to his own. Really, you know, paddle your own canoe. Wow, to thy own self be true. He yeah, always tried to play either Roger Daltrey or uh, Jigsaw. I like that. Interesting. Wow, you reminded me when you mentioned mods and rockers of a very early Beatles press conference they used to give, and those guys were wise asses, right? Especially John Lennon. I know this story. Oh, yeah. do you? Yeah. <laughs> Are you a mod or a rocker? Neither. I'm a mocker. Yeah. <laughs> Hilarious, right? <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, that was the uh, shades of Ron McLean there, just no. coming up with that at the top of his head. Yeah, that is good. <laughs> you can steal that. I will. <laughs> Uh, next tune. Love In the unlikely song. event that Ron has ever questioned whether he is a mod or a rocker, you have a re- an answer at the ready now. I do like uh, Gord Downey's, right? Are you a, uh, a poet or are you a rocker? And he says, uh, I'm a dancer. Uh, That's what he said. Really? Yeah, he, and I, I always liked that. Nice. Uh, cool. 
the Black Rose descending is next. The Black, to my mind, even though they were, I mean, Chris Robinson was a, a drug crazed maniac, but mm. man, they were the last rock band that was really hitting it right, to my mind, yeah. uh, in a big, big way. They had such a string of of uh, deep roots influenced albums, and they were always they weren't staying safe in what made made them an initial hit. They kept yes. trying to grow and bring in more roots and yeah. more blues and more country and more gospel and everything that rock music had ever touched on mm-hmm. over over the rock era. They were combining all those influences in new ways. And, and I remember reading once the definition of invention is combining two existing things in a new way. Mm-hmm. And I love that definition. And and so I found their their albums just really lit a fuse for me. And this so- this particular song, Descending, was from the Amorica album, yes. their third one. And it does actually have that uh, beautiful gospel piano and then a, such a melancholy... Uh, progression. Dun, da, 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 dun, da, dun, yeah. And it just draws you into this. Okay, we're going someplace deep with this. Yes. And and uh, the the chorus uh, on a good day. And I know that's not every day. We can move the sea. Or yeah, wiser time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, brilliant. Right. It's so yeah. warm. So warm that little, yes, it, that it's, little passage. Yes, it's it, and it's a lyric that reaches out to uh, bring people into. Uh, on your good days, you can move a mountain. Yeah, that's a great record. I think uh, that was the yeah. third record, right? Yeah, that was the third one. So I've always said, I don't know if you and I have talked about this, but the most underrated band of the last twenty-five years, the Black Crows. I would. You say. know, they partly their own fault. I mean, Chris Robinson got so deep into cocaine use that he just lost the plot and yeah. he spent a million dollars on an album that they didn't release because they just you know you get deep into your own <laughs> artistic excesses yeah. let's call it when you're in that state but he he did bring it around again for a few uh, more great albums later and and there's a sort of a swan song I guess of the original group called Before the Frost mm-hmm. where they recorded it all live yeah unbelievably good yeah just in, just inspired performances of these guys that they were trying to be like the Grateful Dead I suppose in the live feel of, of preparing the song and then going out and just delivering it yes but I think they did the Grateful Dead one better I think so too and the Grateful Dead was a very sloppy band in that well, regard well yeah they weren't noted for their tightness yeah yeah and the- they were noted for a if you stuck with them, they were going to hit something great eventually. Exactly. So it's like, it's coming, it's coming. Oh, they're building up to something really good. I can feel it. Yeah. If you've seen the Crows live, they did a little bit of that. You know, yeah. They would jam for 25 minutes on, you know, Jealous Again, for example. They would just go off on a tangent. Yeah. And you didn't know what was going to happen. That's part of the, the excitement of rock and roll, really, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't really charted or structured. Yes. And, you know, the... The excesses and the personal failings of our favorite musicians and singers are kind of beside the point. Yeah. Because they sometimes they actually inform the music that we love. Sometimes they lead to the destruction of these people that we wish could keep going like that forever. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of life and the world's cyclical nature is nothing stays the same forever. Everything does move forward. And the people that are trying to hang on to what made them a hit when you first discovered them yep. end up becoming irrelevant. 
yeah. uh, fairly quickly because they're scared to grow. One of the debates that I often entered into was love versus respect. Mm-hmm. In the uh, hockey community, respect is a huge word, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I know a police officer wrote me just the other day from Saskatoon. It was about the Humboldt Broncos. I'm yes. still connected to that story. So yes. I've often thought, Carl, I need you on that one. But <clears throat> anyway... Uh, Patrick Noje is a police inspector, and he says, uh, I'm with your police buddies in PEI, Ron. Respect over love, because love tends to cloud issues to motion, and you've talked a lot about emotion versus your thinking. And, mm-hmm. uh, he said, whereas respect tends to move things along in uh, a more orderly fashion. So Very good. Yeah, and that's, you I know, like that if, 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 if the band, if the musician can keep self-respect and keep respect for the music, uh, then there's a chance things will keep moving. But if it's just the love of the music, mm-hmm. uh, if the emotion takes over, then it can go and uh, Well, disappear. and you know, that touches on one of the reasons. I've thought about this for the last number of years. I'm about the only guy that I started out with that's still doing this. Mm-hmm. Every, and it's because I always had the motto, serve the song, don't serve your ego. Yeah. Serve the song, serve the music. Because that's the objective piece that floats out into the world and that you want to have something that's untainted by your own, almost your own weaknesses. Because ego is a projection of the things we fear. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think I've been well served by having that motto of serve the music and not my ego. Yeah. Well, there are Towns Van Zant. I brought you some vinyl, uh, you and Helen, of Towns. Oh. And I've sort of been giving it to Brent to, to pollute his mind with my love of uh, <laughs> towns, but he has a song called For the Sake of the Song. Yes. And, it, and the basic idea for the song is, why does she sing this song? And is it, you know, all these other factors, or maybe it's just for the sake of the song. Mm-hmm. You know, and I love, I just love Towns. Uh, for yeah, his, I remember you talking about him before. Yeah, yeah. his beautiful appreciation of, uh, of just the song. And he was uh, self-destructive, right? He was gone sure. at 52 and yeah. a raging alcoholic and yeah. just a beautiful soul, but a tortured one. Yes, yes, and that, that is the other thing that I've tr- uh, made a, a conscious effort to avoid is being the, the self-destructive artist. Uh, I realized if you don't take care of yourself, you can't perform at your best. And, and also, you might not live long enough to enjoy the fruits of your labor. That's right. But, and, you know, there's, there's, there's so many aspects to the artist's life and the creative life in, in whatever discipline you pursue and part of it is just being self-aware enough to keep yourself together for the next opportunity, for the mm-hmm. next at-bat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Keep yourself in shape. You know, I was marveling when I saw you guys at the, the celebration that night we all got together at the Pinestone, and I thought, you guys can actually go out and have this kind of a celebration together and then get up and do this again the next day? Holy moly. <laughs> yeah. You made of stern, stern stuff. Yeah. But, the, you know, I... I flirt with. Of course, that was early in the season. Yeah, (laughs) and I'd had a big night the week before, Carl, in Niagara Falls, and I was way over the top. Oh, Uh, yeah, yeah. drink that night, and I was behaved in Halliburton, and then I was not behaved in, I can tell you, the stops where it was just off the rails. But that's a big learning curve for me, for sure, is uh, I remember Alan Doyle in his book, With Great Big Sea, you know, the bouncer, their first big gig was... uh, the lower deck in Halifax. They did quite a bit around Newfoundland, mm-hmm. but they finally felt they'd made it when they crossed over. Oh, and you make it to the mainland. Yeah, yeah, you off got the, to the rock. Mainland, right. <laughs> they let you <laughs> off the rock finally. They had a six-night <laughs> stand at the lower deck in Halifax, and the bouncer after the first performance said, "Now, kid, you know, I want you to be that guy on night six. Mm. You can go out and have a few tonight, but pace yourself. You yeah. know, you, you will be on the road to ruin if you end up on night six, hoarse and lousy." Yeah. And Alan never forgot it. And yeah. uh, so his rule is always you can have one night, but never back to back nights yeah. of frolicking. And we, we party Sunday nights, or I, I'm trying to curb that. But 
Well, yeah. the th you know, it's it's interesting how we all inform each other's journey. The yes. We people in this. Uh, yes. Well, it, is it public? I guess it's performance. All of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And. We're, we're putting something of ourselves out to entertain people or give them an experience outside their normal. Yeah. And it's funny how, you know, as we get older, when we're younger, we we're drawn a little bit to that romantic affectation of the tragic artist, mm -hmm. right, as Towns was. Um, but then as you get older, you can appreciate, you know, things like longevity and quality. Yes, and liver disease. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But where is that line, you know? I can't remember, I wish I could remember who said it, some roguish guy who was famous for being a rogue who said, if I don't go past the boundaries, how will I know where they are? Yeah. <laughs> I like Ray, Ray Jeffries of the Kinks. I was telling Brent. I like oh, Ray his, Davies. Uh, Ray Davies, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah with the, uh, Ray Jeffries is our audio guy talking in Canada. <laughs> Close. Uh, Ray Davies saying, uh, everything in moderation, including moderation. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's just a, yeah, it's a, it's a noble romantic endorsement of uh, the road to hell. <laughs> well, when you're on it, you either get off it or you rationalize being on it, right? Yeah. True. That's very true. So many artists say, I cannot perform without my bottle of Jack Daniels before I go on, you know, because they start to believe that. Right. But it's actually a chemical dependency. It's not a music dependency. Yeah. The music isn't dependent on it. It's other things that, are, that come. And you must have a million accounts of, you know, seeing that sort of thing. Way right? too many. Yeah. And you, you didn't drink in the, in the, the early days of Coney Hatch at all. Is that I right? was, I had, you know what? I had a belief that every six months, if I had kind of a blowout, that was probably good for my pent-up yeah. emotion, frustration, whatever it was. But mainly I was uh, running every, in the daytimes and doing push-ups and sit-ups and all that kind of fitness stuff. Yeah. I always wanted to be at my peak because I thought, if I don't give this absolutely everything I've got, I've got no chance at all. Yeah. This is such a tough road to hoe. Yeah, for sure. And uh, and I thought it was just irresponsible when I saw all the people around me that weren't having the same, I suppose, high standard of behavior for themselves. Now, of course, on the flip side, we're all human, and we want to enjoy this life, and I, I know many of them regarded me as Carl the party pooper. Mm. Ah, Carl's here, the party's over, you know. But really? I, I had my my form of fun, but I just didn't want to be in the bathroom snorting lines of cocaine off the toilet tank with three other guys. Yeah, yeah. That was stupid. And you, I saw people die from it. I saw people lose everything from it. And, One uh, of the things, Carl, that I so admire uh, in your reflections of your career, you talk a little bit about that, you know, being a very serious, focused musician, and sometimes that didn't get warmly received. But uh, people, I think... Uh, accepted your talent and understood your ways uh but you talk a lot about that you know you're and yet you know after having done everything perfectly you know not drinking not smoking not gambling not womanizing you had so many unfair things thrown your way and you didn't come out of it bitter or uh no i guess i always regarded it as okay that's that's my deal that's what i get how do i cope with this one yeah i love that <laughs> but I, but you know i felt like by taking and maybe it becomes self-rationalization again by taking such good care of myself. Boy, am I ever ready to deal with this big one now? Yeah. Well, that's possibly true. You made it through, you know, you shouldn't have made it through, and you did. Yeah. So maybe that's true. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a hell of a point. Uh, doctors in Australia said that's the only reason I lived. Yeah. is because I'd taken such good care of myself over the years. Right. Otherwise, I would, as Jim Cale from the Guess Who said to me afterward, geez, Carl, if any of us lard asses had had that happen to them, we'd be dead right now. So <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Okay, next up is Alana Miles and Sunny Say You Will. 
What a song. Do you know that song? No, I know I don't know this one either. It's off the second album, the Rocking Horse album. Sure, I've heard it then. Chris Ward wrote it. um, Oh, Chris Ward. Yeah, Yeah, and what a great guy he is. But it's just this beautiful, gentle, romantic song. Sonny, say you will. Take me walking down by the boardwalk. Because you know you always make me feel like we are lovers on parade with your sweet talk. Oh, it's... uh, I just uh, melt mm. when I hear that song. And I did a number of shows with Alana at that, the time that second album of hers came out. Okay. Um, I, was just, I just put out my first solo album, so I probably did 20 shows with her in different places around that time. Got to know her, and very interesting, you know, she was, she's uh, almost exactly the same age as me, but she sure seemed damaged already at that time. Really? Well, she totally wore her heart on her sleeve. Yeah. Had a, an ill-advised pursuit of Robert Plant for a time got dumped as probably anyone could have told her Mm. and the first time I met her we were up in Sault Ste. Marie actually Mm. playing at the armories there and she came out and had as she had in her video this sort of Arabic scarf swathed around her hiding her face except for her eyes and over her head Mm. and somebody introduced us and she said oh yeah I know who you are Carl and as we talked and I was just very gentle and gentlemanly with her and little by little she removed the scarf and showed her face and then when she finally revealed her mouth the first thing she did was to call attention to it look what this damn business has done to me all these lines around my face it made me so hard and harsh looking and wow yes she was so sadly conflicted about her place as a woman in this this tough business and you know i saw the sad evidence her she had a band that was not being very nice to her mm. they blew one of her greatest showcase opportunities sponsored by a big brewery or something out in the Rockies by all taking magic mushrooms day of the show oh, and geez. absolutely just falling over on the stage at this big money plastered all over their opportunity showcase oh, Wow! As the, tu- as the tour went on for that album the number of them became heroin addicts they, their, her tour manager was stealing money from her and falsifying the books. They had this game they'd play, Let's Mess with Alana, where they'd start the song a, to- a semitone out of the normal key. Aww. And they they said, and they told, they were snickering about it because she sings in memorized pitch. So when we change the key, she doesn't know how to shift and she keeps singing in the wrong key against what we're doing. It's hilarious. And That's thinking, horrible. You mm. guys, what the hell are you doing? And, you know, she persevered and went out and did a wailing show night after night and was quite a show person. But um, I think it must have great worn on her, you know, yeah. that uh, things went in the wrong direction. I had a heartfelt empathy for her that, you poor thing, you know, you have mm-hmm. no, no man fighting your battles for you against all these, these guys that are taking advantage of the situation. Yeah. Because she was very much, she was, she was a single woman trying to do it herself. Yeah. I told Brent, uh, Kathleen Edwards, do you know her uh, music at all? She's an yeah. uh, Ottawa girl and yeah. uh, just an unbelievable performer. And I, I, she just walked away for a while. I think she's back, uh, you know, the, the draw, the love of singing is never going to leave her. And she's a great guitar player as well. But, yeah, I think she had some just that same road. You mm-hmm. know, it was an extremely difficult road. I watched uh, with interest when Hart performed uh, for Robert Plant. Yes. Did, yeah. uh, right? Yes. And I just... I don't know. I, I didn't get a warm and fuzzy from Robert uh, in his... He was trying to look sincere in his appreciation of 
rock and roll. I forget what they sang that. No, night. they, they sang. Uh, the they did Stairway. Stairway. Yeah. Yeah. Did he not yeah. weep? Yeah, I, I know. I, I I was trying to decide if it was sincere. But I wonder if it was or not. You yeah. know, because sure it was, uh, but or maybe it was. Look what they're doing to our song. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> He's crying because it's so bad. Anyway, it was a great moment, but it was. A t- I just looked at it, you know, and tried to analyze it and think what what, what was it like for Anne and Nancy, right? They the, what what they did is a, a miraculous too. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, I've so done much. shows with them, and they are, they are, even this day and age, they're still powerful performers and singers and players, my God. Yeah. yeah. Sweet, sweet thing they do together as sisters, you know. Yeah. That, maybe that gave them more power if they, because they had that unity. Oh, there well, were two of them to stand together. I, I can tell you, Anne Murray uh, wouldn't have made it through her Vegas run without Bruce, her brother. You know, uh, Bruce always told me that Anne was just terrified. Uh, she, she hated the whole lifestyle. Yeah. She had become the biggest thing. She won the Grammy, you know, as top female vocalist in 78, and now she owns Vegas much the way Celine Dion did. And mm-hmm. in the later years, many of our Canadian women uh, took the U.S. by storm. But mm-hmm. Bruce was her grounding. Yeah. You know, he, he took care of her uh, yeah. through that most difficult portion of her career. Yeah. Nice. Anne had an incredible voice and still does. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite party tricks for special events is to do Snowbird as close to Anne Murray's way as I can. <laughs> <laughs> Sounding as much like Anne Marie as I can. That was I love that song, and I remember when she was first coming out. She appeared on C, on CBC promoting uh, her new record, and they said, yeah. "Well, what song would you like us to play, Anne?" And she'd already had Sing Along Jubilee, uh, yeah. f- uh, renowned in Canada. Yeah. And she said, "Well, I think I'd like to hear Snowbird on the radio." Mm. And I just heard it, and I thought, oh, yeah. "Wow, <laughs> what a song! What a singer! Holy moly!" Yeah. So yeah, I've always. When I play somebody's song like that, I'm trying to touch on that first uh, feeling that coursed through me when I yes. heard their song, and it moved me so much. Uh, that's why I have a solo acoustic album that I called One Voice, Two Hands, and that's yeah. the mission. I'm trying to create as close to that memory of the song as I can with just this voice and these two hands on the instrument. Yeah. I distinctly remember that song from my childhood. And mm-hmm. it was almost like on your second episode, uh, Dominique, mm-hmm. you know, in your childhood, these songs made you feel... Oh, the singing nun. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, uh, I Catherine McKinnon's version was the one that my mom played most, but uh, of course, the singing nun made it a hit in 1963. Yes. I was telling yeah. Brent for four weeks in a row, right after John F. Kennedy, right, right oh. after the assassination. So America was looking wow. for something uh, yes. light and uh, maybe a bit religious, and uh, she yes. was she was the number one just before the British invasion. She's kind of the last thing before the Beatles hit. Yeah, uh, and yeah, yeah. That song was big it's, with my youth. I remember, well, anyway, for Alana, I, I just loved, you know, I'd watch her go out and do a ferocious singing performance, delivering her stuff, even though the business tide had turned against her and she'd somehow alienated her label in the States and they'd stopped working the record. But she just went out there and gave it her, her all every night. And I was, I was very impressed. And at some point we were talking and she said, you know, I'm actually a blues singer, mm. so maybe I should be exploring that I more. could see that. She had that raspy, whiskey-soaked mm. voice, right? Mm-hmm. I, I had no idea that any of this stuff had gone on with her. Well, it's not the sort of thing you run around and publicize, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and maybe I'll maybe I'll be spanked for telling tales out of school. I don't know, but it's a long, long time ago now. And, yeah. And we're all moved on. Yeah, that's horrible. Anyway. The music is what lasts, as we were saying earlier. In spite of all the behind-the-scenes stories, our response to the music is what endures. However, exactly. I will say, like you know, Carl and Brent, you don't trust the singer, you won't trust the song. Yes. So, uh, you know, there's there's a lot to be said for what you've just said about all that. That I love. You know, that's a 
that's a great insight into you know her survival skill perseverance and her, yeah her yeah. perseverance is it's a great story there's nothing mm-hmm. to be uh, it's a, and it's a, it's a typical story again you know that's just that's the life as uh, as sort of fantasized or romanticized was, mm-hmm. uh, you know the boys could uh, frolic and the Good luck to her if she wants to. Yeah, try the girls, the, the girls doing the housework, and the boys yes. are all having a good time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that's how you were with uh, a lot of your <laughs> bands. Part. Well, you know, I used to talk about how I had a mothering instinct. Yeah, you were the driver, <laughs> and I, I mean the driver. Yeah, <laughs> you were taking the, you were taking the band from one destination to the next. Thank God they had a DD. We didn't know what they were at the time. That's right. We had one. Yeah. So when that came around, oh, finally they have a name for what I do. Yeah. <laughs> All right, your next tune is uh, Bob Dylan, and it's Simple Twist of Fate. Great pick. Yeah, oh, man, the lyrics on that. And my, my performance of it that I love is on a, so a bootleg, official bootleg that CBS was releasing in the 90s. They had a series of these, and it was from the Rolling Thunder Review mm. tour of 1975, where he kept having guests turn up, Joni Mitchell and, and Joan Baez, and Mick Ronson from David Bowie's band was nice. in his band and uh, on lead guitar, and... Um, Anyway, this this performance of Simple Twist of Fate doesn't matter whether you like Bob Dylan singing or not. It's just it's just chilling and mm. uh, very affecting the the story that's in the lyrics and the delivery of it. And when you have a compelling story, you don't have to have a beautiful, sweet singer. Mm-hmm. The story is what magnetizes you. It's true. Yeah, and you trusted Bob on everything, right? Uh, yeah. Tom Petty covers it, and uh, you know it's one of the songs that influenced Tom Petty for sure yeah simple twist of fate it's just uh, I mean Dylan because I uh, been out with Ian uh, Tyson you know whenever I go to do the Calgary Stampede invariably we'll get Ian involved and Mm -hmm. you know I will show up in uh, Longview, Alberta with our cameras and he'll say, now you're going to make me do one of those stupid walking and talking with my horse videos again, are you? <laughs> Just such a great guy. But he, you know, obviously he was right there. Ian and Sylvia were yeah. playing New York on the same show same as circuit. Bob. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, but he's, who, who doesn't he inspire? Yeah. Uh, just tangled and, up. And interesting, you know, as a kid, I, I didn't quite get it i you know he didn't have a lot of hits and i was so much about credence and the guess who and the beatles oh, and all this top too. and the, all the great top 40 stuff and then lay lady lay came along and i thought oh that's kind of cool because i'd heard of bob dylan but i wasn't drawn to seek him out me too and where it really turned me around was the concert for bangladesh film mm-hmm. when uh you you know they had the concert in 71 and then the film came out almost a year later i think i remember it was debuting downtown in toronto i was visiting my grandma and so she gave me money to go downtown to some theater. I think it was the Mount Pleasant. And I was there with all the big kids and all the all the young rockers. Yeah. And I was 13 or something and sitting there. And I remember Leon Russell in the middle of that beginning coming in a jump and Jack Flash. And in the nice. movie theater, all the kids are stomping along and kept clapping with the film screen. It was so exciting. Wow. And then Bob Dil- uh, George Harrison says in the film, And now I'd like to introduce a friend of us all, Mr. Bob Dylan. And apparently, I learned later, it was right up until showtime, they didn't know whether he was going to turn up or not. Oh. George had been pleading with them for days, please come and do the show. And, and he almost didn't, and then something at the last minute. Same, th- same, same thing with Eric Clapton. But Dylan walked out, and he just started playing his songs, his early great songs, so simply and unaffectedly. And George picked up, uh, uh, what did he play? He had electric guitar. Leon Russell played bass, yeah. and Ringo played a tambourine for a little bit of rhythm accompaniment. Mm. Uh, there was just Dylan standing there playing his songs, and I, that is when I th- became a Dylan fan. Yeah, when I saw, oh, okay, that's the power this guy has in his music, and 
you know, at that age, I suddenly realized, okay, I got a lot of time for this guy now. Yeah. And that's the depth, right? So it's easy just to kind of dismiss him based on his on his voice and, and you know the well, sound of it. It's such a thing, facile way to exactly. It's worth digging it. in and and really appreciating. The, I think it's like Leonard Cohen, right? You, yeah. If you just go by Leonard's singing, you, yeah. you perfect might, example. The story yeah. is what's significant. Yes. yes. This, yeah. this, the voice is merely the vehicle to deliver the story. But I that's believe right. in the voice. Yes. I be, you know, as odd as it is, I, I so believe in it. You believe you, in it. You more can believe so. that voice attached to that story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. It sounds yeah. like. That's the life that man led. Mm-hmm. Neil Young's the same way, for sure. Right. Yep. Yeah. But, and uh, you think Neil Young could get a record deal today? <laughs> no kind of way. I like that though. Yeah. I do like that. You know, because it speaks to the veracity of what he was doing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Santana, "The Nile" is your last tune. Oh, are you familiar with that era of uh, when Alex Ligertwood was the singer in Santana? No, this was eighties. This. Um, it's a combination of North African, probably Moroccan guitar influences, as well as the Latin feel. Mm-hmm. And that Alex Ligertwood uh, has had this uh, enormous, high, strong singing voice. He was a little Scotsman with bad teeth, but God, could he sing. Mm. And uh, they had one hit, I think, with him. Uh, I'm willing, I'm willing. Yeah. Oh, that was the hit from that era. Anyway, this song, The Nile, it's, you know, it's, it reminds me of Frank's, uh, Frank Zappa saying, talking about music, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. <laughs> there are some things you can't, you just can't convey about music in words, except it's, it's it, one of my very favorite Santana tracks, the combination of the, the, unusual musical influences in Alex Ligertwood's voice uh, and a story about uh, a woman in an Egyptian enchantress mm-hmm. essentially uh, just compelling yeah in fact you said the, the music that makes your skin vibrate uh, yeah I just got yeah. to tingle up my, my spine as I was telling you about it <laughs> so it's all about right there isn't yeah. it perfect so speaking of skin vibration your guitar is right there and I was hoping that you would play a tune yeah for sure now what are we going to do here? What are you going to play? Well, we talking about Tom Petty. We talking about Coney well, Hatch. But play what you're feeling. I like mean, you, you just did Roger Daltrey. Maybe you're feeling like singing one of the songs you just did, yeah. on a Wanda. Or maybe you're feeling like uh, something. Uh... Well, there's this Pete Townsend's vocal on Quadrophenia. I love the song, and I can't quite play the guitar as well as Pete, but I can have a go. It's called "I'm One." Please. Mm, it's probably G, yeah. Every year it's the same And I feel it again I'm a loser No chance to win Leaves are falling Come down is calling Loneliness starts sinking in But I'm one But I can't get that even ten look on my face 
ill-fitting clothes that I blend in the crowd Fingers so clumsy, voice too loud But I'm one I am one And I can see that this is me Sir, I missed a verse, but you know, that's fantastic. <laughs> I've actually never tried playing it in my life, so I got not bad getting that far. It was fantastic. Far. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome. but that's an example of the the identification in the lyrics that Townsend was projecting into um, into the stories he was writing. He tells a story somewhere around that he did an interview around then. Where he said he got a letter from a fan who was saying, "I'm I just love you guys so much. You have no idea how much I think about you." And Townsend wrote him back a letter that said. You have no idea how much I think about you lot. Hmm. And that's what he, you know, he was thinking about that all the time. What's going on out there in, in the generation that I'm talking to? Yeah. Well, that was the uh, lesson I got in broadcasting was it's one-to-one communication, right? Not uh, yeah. hello, everybody, or hi, Canada. It's uh, everything was one-to-one, and uh, it's about relationships. Back to your uh, earlier idea of infusing two different uh, art forms into one, you know, mm. that that conversation is what that is you yeah. know, and it's only two it's two people in a conversation generally mm-hmm. so uh, you know except I'm screwing up this one but except <laughs> this time Carl and Brent. <laughs> <laughs> no, this, this yeah. is uh, we're combining three things in a new way three yeah. existing things in a new way <laughs> this, I, this is fan- I've never done this before yeah. so this is fantastic and I'm extremely thankful to both of you for being here I really appreciate it I've really enjoyed this well thank you and you're welcome back anytime. Thank you. Let's do it again. Okay. Should we finish with a Tom Petty song? Because Tom always had uh, Ben Montentious, keyboard player, would come by the studio. He liked to do a show called Buried Treasures. Tom. Oh, he, he heard about loved that, to yeah. pay homage to uh, the roots of music, and uh, he went way back, uh, beautifully so. But his band would just pop into the studio, and I always got that, again, that just chill out of, uh, you know, if I was a young boy listening to Brent's uh, No Sleep Till Sudbury, I'd think, God. Carl and Ron just keep popping into the studio. Oh, that's, that is so cool. And Tom, Tom's band was uh, always, you know, on the periphery, but one or the other would come in to just offer advice about an old song and a recommendation about a new song. And great, huh. great to hear it. Yeah. Well, look, I'll, you jump in wherever you know the words. How's okay. that? Maybe you'll do the the board fade out of the show with this. I can. Well, I won't back down. I won't back down You can stand me up at the gates of hell And I won't back down No, I stand my ground Won't be turned around And I'll keep this world from dragging me down Gonna stand my ground And I won't back down I've got just one life 
And I'll keep this world from pushing me around Gonna stand my ground And I won't back down All right. That was fun, you guys. Thanks, Ron. That was definitely the first time that's happened. All right. I hope the listeners enjoyed that. That was a true treat. Carl Dixon and Ron McLean on No Sleep Till Sudbury. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for coming in. Thanks, Brent. It's a lot of fun. Cheers, Brent. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.